has been good this morning already in these last few moments, exalting this glorious and victorious God and declaring truth unto him together. And now we have the joy of hearing him declare truth to us through his word. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please grab that and open up to the book of Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in Judges chapter 6 this morning, and uh, we have some 60-odd verses to cover together, and so we are going to hit the ground running as we hear what God has for us this morning in his word. Last week, we spent our time in Judges 6 seeing who the God of Gideon declared himself to be who the God of Gideon revealed himself to be over and over throughout the story. He showed himself to be a merciful God, showed himself to be a faithful God, a God who is with his people, a God who is jealous for exclusive worship, and a God who is gracious and gracious and gracious time and time again. Now, when we first met Gideon in Judges chapter six, he was hiding in the wine press. And this is where the angel of the Lord finds him and he speaks to Gideon and he assures him that the Lord is with him. The Lord says to him in verse 14, Gideon, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Then in verse 16, he says, but Gideon, I'll be with you and you will strike the Midianites as one man. You see, God meets Gideon in the wine press and he calls him on a mission. God calls Gideon on a mission and it's not just any kind of mission, but this is God's mission that he is calling him to. And in his mission, God promises him his presence. You see, the two phrases, do not I send you and I will be with you necessarily go together. And anytime God says, do not I send you, he also promises, I will be with you. If God calls his people to do something, then he assures his presence to see that it will be accomplished. When I am on God's mission, God is with me. When you and I are on God's mission, God promises his presence. God is with me. God is with you. And so I want to pause right as we begin this morning and ask, is God present in your life? And do you have an awareness of God's presence in your life? When is the last time that you thought to yourself, God is surely here. God's presence is here. God is with me right now. Now, I'm not asking if you've had some kind of mystical experience with an atmospheric sense of God's presence. No, instead, what I'm asking is, have we increasingly paused to recognize God's presence where you are and in your life circumstances? Have you increasingly paused to consider that the God who has revealed himself in his word is with you? As you go through life and consider what is going on around you, do you have times where you pause and say, God, I know that you're here right now and I'm experiencing your mercy right now in this moment? Or do you have times when you say, God, I know what's going on right now and it's hard to see, but God, I see your faithfulness in it. And the way that you've been bringing people into my life, the way that you've been putting truth before me, God, I can see you're faithful over and over again. Or God, 
I know that I'm experiencing your grace right now in this moment, even as words come out of my lips and as words come into your ears and into your hearts. God, we recognize your presence right here, right now in this moment. Surely you are here. If it's been a while since you have paused to consider the presence of God in your life and been aware of God's presence, I wanna gently start this morning by asking, are you on mission And not just any mission, but are you on God's mission? You see, this morning we're going to see Gideon, and Gideon is a man on missions. And no, Gideon is not going to St. Vincent. He's not going to Romania. He's not going to Haiti. That's not what I'm talking about, about missions. I'm talking about a man who has an intended goal, and he's setting out to see that it would be accomplished. And so as we see Gideon this way this morning, would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that we have your truth before us this morning. And oh God, I would ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would press these words into our souls, that you would increase our faith and our joy in you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Judges 6, 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. This is what we saw last week in Judges chapter six as the people of Israel were being oppressed by the Midianites and they would come in year after year and force the Israelites out of their home and they would leave no food in the land. They would lay it waste and destroy it. And so every day for seven years, the people of Israel had been living in poverty and in hunger and in fear. Last week we saw in verse 34, it's not the same story for the last seven years this time something is different. Verse 34, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers all throughout Manasseh and they too were called to follow him and to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali. And they went up to meet them together. The Midianites had invaded the land and now in the spirit of the Lord, Gideon finally gathers an army in accordance with the word of the Lord and the goal of the Lord and the mission of the Lord. Gideon's obedient to the Lord. He calls this army out together and now the two armies are in their camps getting ready for war. We ended last week by seeing Gideon with the fleeces and before Gideon enters into this battle, God reassures him and builds his faith and promises him his presence again and again. Our story picks up this morning in Judges 7, verse 1. It says, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Lest Israel boast over me and say that my own hand has saved me. In that phrase, in that verse, do you see the care of the Lord? Do you see the mercy of the Lord? Do you see how God is showing his goodness to his people? You see, God knows humans like really, really well. He created you and me and so he gets how we work. And so Gideon, here he is, he calls out this massive army and we find out in verse three that it's about 32,000 people. So this is a pretty substantial army that responds to Gideon's call. However, we learn in Judges 8.10 that the Midianite army was comprised of 120,000 warriors. 
32,000 versus 120,000. And so here the army of Israel is gathered and they look down into the valley and they see something that might look like this with the Midianite army ready to press upon them. And so Gideon is walking through the camp and he's taking inventory, finding out exactly how many warriors he has and the weapons that they've brought with them. And as Gideon is doing this, all of a sudden the Lord says to him, uh, hey, Gideon, Gideon, uh, there are way too many warriors here. Gideon's thinking, God, what? Are you kidding me? How, how can there ever be too many warriors who show up for battle? That's not how this whole thing looks. God, look, come over here, come over here. Look over in the valley. Do you see the Midianites? God, there's probably like 120,000 of them out there. I've just finished counting. There's only 32,000 of us. God, we could really use a few more hands, not less. God's response? No, 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 Gideon, Gideon, I'm telling you. There are too many. You see, if you were going into this battle on your own, you would need a lot more warriors. You're exactly right. But Gideon, I've called you to this battle and I've promised you my presence. And Gideon, I'm telling you, you need fewer men, not more. This was my idea. This is my mission. And I've promised you my presence. You see, here's what I think God understood about man. Man loves to glorify their own efforts. Man loves to trust in their proven methods. Man loves to credit their own contributions. Man loves to think well of their own cleverness. Now you might be thinking, hmm, that does describe some people that I know really, really well. But what if we change the quote for a second? And what if we add blanks instead of man and we fill our names in? Cody loves to glorify his own efforts. Cody loves to trust in his own proven methods. Cody loves to credit his own contributions. Cody loves to think well of his own cleverness. You see, the truth is God knows my heart and he knows your heart as well. And so in his mercy, God orchestrates all of life's realities so that I and you would learn to increasingly depend upon him and not ourselves. God orchestrates life realities so that I and you and we would learn to depend on him, not on our own strengths. You see, this is why God brought the people of Israel to the promised land in the very first place, into the most military contested area of the ancient world, into a land that required the rains to fall to save them from famine and starvation. They would constantly, every single day, have to be dependent upon the Lord and him showing up. You see, when I am on God's mission, God provides his strength. When I'm on God's mission, God provides his strength. He says to Gideon, too many warriors, you'll depend on your own strength, not mine. God knows how quickly we want to turn and to trust ourselves. And he knows that it is not good for our souls to trust ourselves. He knows that it is not safe for us to trust in ourselves because it may appear safe for a while, but sooner or later, the illusion is removed. This is the exact same sin from Genesis chapter three when the snake came in the garden and said to Adam and Eve, eat for then you will know the difference between good and evil. See, up to this point, they had to depend on God and be obedient, continuously obedient to him. But they said, you know what? Yes, if I have this, then I can take matters into my own hand. I don't have to depend on God anymore. I can depend on myself. 
You see, they want to throw off their dependence upon the Lord, depend on their own wisdom. And this is exactly what we see here. And in 7.2, it's almost as if it's screaming the heart of God towards his children. He's saying, children, son or daughter of mine, don't depend on your strength. Don't learn to fall on your strength. Learn to live in my strength and depend upon me. I'm a good father and I will show my strength sufficient for the task. But oh, how quickly we want to steal God's glory. You see, if I do it on my own, then I'll be great. If I do it on my own, then I'll be great and other people will think I'm pretty great too. I'll make a name for myself. I'll become like God. God in his kindness weakens Gideon's army so that they might know for certain that it is God's strength who delivers them in the battle and not their own. This is God's mission and God has promised his presence and his strength to see that the mission is a success for the glory of his name and the deliverance of his people. Judges 7.3 continues. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Okay, Gideon, so, so here's what we're gonna do. Do you remember what I said in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse eight? And Gideon's like, no, God, I have no idea what Deuteronomy 28 says. He's like, okay, well, here's what I said. I said, okay, if you're going into war, then go and say to the people, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest the heart of his fellows melt on account of him. Now, the people in the, the army troops, they hear this and they're like, yes, this is Deuteronomy 28. I'm out of here. And 22,000 pick up their things and head for home. That is nearly 70% of the army that came out that takes off. I mean, Gideon cracks the door open and they bolt for home the very first opportunity that they have. I mean, talk about demoralizing. Talk about the hearts of the fellows melting Gideon, the guys are standing there and Gideon opens up his big mouth and you're standing there in a group of 10 people and all of a sudden seven of them grab their things and leave. And now you're standing in the circle with the two guys who you didn't even like in the first place and the army's still before you and the war is still impending. Now, a quick note before we continue with the story. 22,000 of the 32,000 leave for the same reason. And what is it? Fear. 70% of the people in this narrative are impacted by fear. And I have got to believe that that says something about the human condition. And I've got to believe that that statistic is transferable to this room this morning. Last Sunday, there were 300 people in this room each service. If that statistic does apply to us, then that means 210 out of the 300 of us are significantly impacted by fear. That would be like this entire middle section and the first four rows on each side section picking up their things and leaving because of fear. And lest we underestimate fear and its grip on our lives, this quote is helpful. It says, stop for a moment and think of how many different sinful actions and attitudes come from anxiety, come from fear. Anxiety about finances can give rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing. 
Anxiety about succeeding at some task can make you irritable and abrupt and surly. Anxiety about relationships can make you withdrawn and indifferent and uncaring about other people. Anxiety about how someone will respond to you can make you cover over the truth and lie about things. So if anxiety could be conquered, then a mortal blow would be struck to many other sins. Let us not underestimate what fear can do when it grips our lives. We look around at situations in our life and many times it does, it causes fear to rise in our souls. And sometimes the very things that we're depending on, it's almost like we feel like God removes them from us and he's standing there with arms crossed saying, yeah, I took that too. Now let's see how you're gonna struggle your way through this. And yet that picture could not be further than the truth. That picture of God taking things away because he wants to see us struggle through could not be further from the truth. God in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, and in his faithfulness causes and allows circumstances so that you and I would learn to be ever increasingly depending upon him. This is God in his mercy to keep us near to him and dependent on his strength. So 32,000 come out and 10,000 remain. So now Gideon has to start reworking his entire battle plan. 70% have gone and here he goes and he says, okay, well, if we wait till this point to send these troops in and we start coming around from this side and he's doing all this, and then interruption. Hey, hey Gideon, hey, Gideon, Judges 7-4, there are still too many people. God, what on earth are you trying to do here? You cannot be serious. And so what does God do? He brings them down to the river and he tests the people and he says, okay, Gideon, we're gonna stand here and I'm gonna tell you the guys that are in and the guys that are out. There are still too many, we need fewer. That guy, he's in, out, 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 out. All the way down, 300 men remain. When God gets done doing his plan with the army of Gideon, he pairs them down to 300 men. Israel is now at 0.9% of their original strength. 0.9%. 32,000 came out, 300 remain. It is now 300 versus 120,000. So at first when the 32,000 were there, each Israelite would have had to kill four Midianites and live in order for there to be victory. Now, each Israelite must kill 400 Midianites and live if there is to be victory. Gideon is surely thinking in this moment, okay, God, at first it seemed unlikely, then it seemed impossible, and now I'm convinced you're just trying to kill all of us. What is going on here, God? He reminds him of 7-2 again, but lest you boast against me and say that our own hand has delivered us, Gideon, there are still too many. God needed Gideon and all of Israel to see that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men that man would be saved. And he proclaims this truth to the people of Israel and to Gideon. And it's the same truth that he proclaims to you and me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is declaring that salvation is always by his gracious action and not by our efforts. God is declaring that salvation from him is always, always, always based on his gracious actions and not on us earning it with our actions. 
And because this is true in salvation and deliverance, God alone receives the glory. God alone receives the glory so that you and I might live always and forever dependent upon his strength and his presence in our lives. And so now Gideon, with an army that is 99.1% smaller than when he first started, stands before the same 120,000. In verse nine, chapter seven, it says, that same night, the Lord said to him, Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But Gideon, if you are afraid... God reminds Gideon the mission, go down to the camp. He reminds him of his presence and his strength. I have given, past tense, the camp into your hands. That means it's already done. God's declared it. Make no mistake, it's going to happen. And then God showing again his perfect knowledge and perfect love for his children says, but Gideon, if you are afraid... Gideon doesn't initiate this part of the conversation. He doesn't hesitate this time. No, instead, God immediately meets him and says, Gideon, if you are afraid, and who can blame Gideon for being afraid? And in his fear, God does not say to him, Gideon, what are you waiting for? I just told you to go down to the camp. Now get up and get. No, instead, God seeks to bring about faith in the midst of Gideon's fear. He seeks to strengthen him and increase his faith. Gideon, Gideon, if you are afraid, and I know that you are, and in fact, it's perfectly natural that you should be. Why? Because you can't do it. 300 can't defeat 120,000. It is certain death unless I show up. Gideon, you cannot do it. But if you depend on my strength, and if you depend on my presence, you will see victory. This is exactly where Gideon wanted, or where God wanted Gideon to be. God in his infinite wisdom, God in his grace and in his mercy needed Gideon and all of Israel to come to this realization. And yet I ask, how many of us rejoice when we're put into these kinds of situations? Situations that are seemingly impossible, situations that seem like certain death, situations that display our incalculable weakness, the kinds of situations where even the illusion of control is removed. And what if in the midst of these seemingly impossible circumstances, we too believed that we serve the same God Gideon serves? I'm not talking about foolishly rushing into life things that happen because we're risking things for our own glory. I'm talking about circumstances that naturally arise and certainly will arise on the path to obedience to the Lord. And in the midst of these, what if we believe that God is saying, yeah, 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 but Cody, if you are afraid. And so how does God meet Gideon in his fears? And how does God meet us in our fears? In verses 10 through 13, as Gideon goes down to the camp in obedience to the Lord, he hears some of the Midianite soldiers talking. And one of them says, I just had the craziest dream. There was like this big dinner roll that rolled into the camp and knocked over a bunch of tents. And the other guy's standing there like, Oh man, it's Gideon. It's Gideon. I don't know how he got Gideon out of a dinner roll rolling into the camp, but he did. And so the whole army starts shaking and they say, well, surely God has delivered us into the hand of Gideon. How does God meet Gideon in his fearfulness? He meets him by using a Midianite enemy to speak truth 
that encourages his soul. When Gideon hears truth, it injects his heart with faith and fear subsides. Faith in the promise of God to do as he said he would do. When you and I are on God's mission, God builds my faith with truth. In the midst of your fears, God builds your faith with truth. The Lord knows the fears of his servants, yet God is not so strict as to be harsh when we tremble. He does not ridicule us for our fears. He never mocks us because we are fragile. The other day we were out in our yard playing with our kids and one of those big massive bumblebees that sound terrifying was coming up by his ear. He's two and a half. He came running across the yard yelling, daddy, daddy, scared, scared. And I didn't say to him, son, suck it up. It's only a bumblebee. No, instead I grabbed him and I picked him up in my arms and I assured him that it was okay. And I'm like a really, really imperfect father. And yet we have a heavenly father who meets us and assures us in the midst of our fears. If you are a fearful person and fear has given rise to many other sinful attitudes and actions in your life, then what you, what I, what we need to know is what is at the root of our fear. And ultimately it is unbelief. It is a failure to trust in who God has proclaimed himself to be. It is a lacking of faith in the promises that God has given to you and I. And I say it this morning not to condemn any of us in this room. I say it this morning to come as a help. And so how do you and I fight for faith in the midst of our fears? We grab a hold of truth by the power of the Holy Spirit and ask God that, that he would take this truth and impress it so deeply into our souls that in the place of fear, he would cause that to be removed and instead, faith would arise. And so how does God do that for you and I right now in this room? I'm guessing he hasn't done it through the voice of a Midianite enemy in your life. No, instead, God has given us his word and he speaks to us in our fears through his word and through his people. God meeting us in our fear with truth. And so what is the proper response to God's kindness when we experience it in the midst of our fears? What is the proper response to God's kindness in promising his presence and in giving us his strength and in building our faith with truth? Judges 7, verse 15. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. What does Gideon do in response? Gideon worships first and then he obeys. Gideon worships and obeys. And this ought to be your response and my response when God meets us in the midst of our fears and increases our faith with truth. Worship and obedience should characterize the life of a man or a woman on mission for God. Worship and obey. As God continues to make his presence known in your life, worship and obey. As God continues to show his strength as strong in the midst of your weakness, worship and obey. As God continues to build your faith with truth, worship and obey. And so, 
And the rest of the passage here in 16 through 25, uh, Gideon rallies the troops together and now just 300 men. And as they're standing there together, he says, okay, uh, here's what we're gonna do. Everybody just take one of these trumpets. Okay, we're gonna split up into three different camps. We're gonna surround the Midianites. And then when you hear things starting to get a little weird and funky, all I want you to do is blow the trumpets and start screaming. I'm sure there was at least one guy in the camp who was like, we're gonna die anyway, whatever, let's do it. And so... They go out there and they run Gideon's play. And in verse 21, it tells exactly what they did. It says, and every man stood in his place around the camp. So get a load of this. How did the Israelites fight against the army of 120,000 Midianites? They stood in their place. They stood there just like I'm doing right now. But what happened? 22 continues, the Lord set every Midianite sword against another Midianite. The people stood there and did exactly as God told them to do, but then God showed up and he alone won the battle. God alone is the victor and his victory is his people's victory. And who gets the glory in this deliverance and in this salvation? God and only God. When I am on God's mission, he alone receives the glory. When I am on God's mission, he alone receives the glory, and oh yeah, you and I receive joy. How beautiful is that? God receives the glory, and we receive the joy. The Midianites scram, and the people of Israel pursue. God's mission accomplished. Israel is now free from their oppression, and so what now do we expect as we've seen throughout the book of Judges so far? Well, we would expect to see, just like we saw back with Othniel in Judges chapter 3, and so God gave the land rest for 40 years. Or what we saw with Ehud in Judges 3.30. So the enemy was subdued, and the land had rest for 80 years. But that's not what we see here, is it? That's not what we see at the end of Judges chapter 7. You see, what was Gideon's mission from God it was to go and deliver the people from the Midianite oppression, to rid the land of the Midianites. Has that been done? Yes. Mission accomplished. And so why? Why another chapter? Why more Gideon? Instead of hearing the land had rest, we are now catapulted into a new story with a new setting, a new plot, and an entirely new Gideon. Up to this point, We've seen Gideon as a man on a mission, God's mission. And Gideon in chapter eight is going to continue to be a man on a mission, but it's changed. Gideon is no longer on God's mission. Gideon is on his mission. And so for the brief time that we have left this morning, I want to cruise our way through Judges chapter eight and observe the striking differences between a man and a woman on mission for God or a man and a woman who's on mission for self. The man on a mission for God went in the Lord's strength with the Lord's presence, had a life characterized by worship and obedience to the glory of God and for their joy. But what of the person who's on mission for self? In Judges 8, verses 1 through 3, the men of Ephraim come to Gideon and they have a little uh, thing that they want to get right with him. You see, they wonder why Gideon didn't invite them into the battle sooner and so he has this scuffle with this tribe that's far more powerful. And so he gets them to settle down by boosting their ego and saying, well, you guys have done so much more than I ever could. And then in 8.4, it says, and Gideon then came to the Jordan, the Jordan River, 
and crossed over. Now, can you say big deal, please? Yeah, say like big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. Gideon has just now crossed over the Jordan River. God's mission was a call to rid the land, the promised land, the land west of the Jordan River of the Midianites. And now Gideon crosses over out of the promised land and he continues to pursue after the enemies. Now with the Midianite army vanquished, Gideon is not done. Though the land is free, Gideon still has something before him. Gideon is going beyond the boundaries of God's call. And as he leaves the boundaries of God's promised land, so he also leaves the presence of God. Now you say, Cody, where do you see that in the text? I'm not seeing that. Well, that's exactly the point. You see, up until now, in the last chapter and a half, we've seen God mentioned 60 times in 80 verses. That's nearly two out of every three times, every three verses, God is mentioned. The Lord said, God said, the angel of the Lord did. God said, God said, over and over and over again. And now, we're not going to see the name of God mentioned over the next 30 verses except one time, and it's gonna be when Gideon issues a threat to his fellow Israelites. So the next time that we see the name of the Lord mentioned is in 834, and this is what it says. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them. Gideon leaves the promised land. He leaves the boundaries of God's call and in so doing leaves the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is no longer with Gideon because Gideon is no longer on God's mission. Gideon then is a man on missions. He accomplishes God's mission, but now he has a mission of his own. 8-4, again, Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed. He and the 300 men who were with him, they were exhausted yet pursuing. So Gideon takes God's 300 hand-selected men and no longer treats them as if they're God's men. Now they are his men. And he drives them to the point of exhaustion. Whatever he's going after, he's extremely passionate about. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to see that his mission is accomplished. When I am on my own mission, I see people as a means to an end. When I am on my mission, I just see people as a means to an end. Others exist for my benefit and for my service, and I will run them to the point of exhaustion to serve me. After all, my mission is before me, and it must be accomplished at all costs. Verses five and six Gideon then asks his brothers now in the territory of Gad on the east side of the Jordan River, he comes into one of their main cities in Succoth and he says to them, hey, would you guys be willing to pursue after these kings with me and we need some help, can you feed us and help our army? We learn that he's pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, they're identified as Midianite kings and what do the men of of Succoth say to Gideon? They say, Gideon, it's not happening. Sorry, we can't help you. So likely what's going on is they think that the Midianites might regroup and then reconquer and then anyone who helped Gideon will be punished by the Midianites and they say, Gideon, it's just not happening. And now if Gideon were still on God's mission, how should he respond in this situation? He would say something to the effect of, guys, I know, I know it sounds crazy. I know it just sounds insane that we could defeat them, but listen, God just took out 120,000 with only 300 men. He's done it before. He can do it again. God is with us and his strength will prevail. But he's not on God's mission anymore. 
And so instead, what does he say? Look at verse seven. He says to them, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Whoa, that's different. Gideon is clearly willing to do whatever it takes to see his mission accomplished. He even threatens his own brothers with ruthless torture. This would be like me getting on the phone this week and calling Pastor Brock at Harvest Indy South and saying, hey, I I could really use your hand this week with something going on in student ministries. Are you able to come and help me? He's like, no, 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 I can't, man. I'm sorry, it's just not happening. And I say, okay, that's fine. I'm gonna come to your house this week and torture you and your family. What? Like, that's not okay. And Gideon knew it. You see, when I'm on my own mission, I punish people who stand in my way. When I'm on my own mission, I punish people who stand in my way. I'll punish them with threats. I'll punish them with words. I'll punish them with silence. And I'll punish them with physical harm. Rather than being made weak and put in a place where I must depend on God's strength, I want to appear strong and in control and make power moves to assert myself and my will and grasp at control. And so in verses eight and nine, from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to some more of his brothers in the same way. And they answered him in the same way as the men at Sukkoth. And Gideon said to them, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. It's interesting that Gideon would say, when I come again in peace. You see, this word peace, shalom, has been mentioned one other time in the Gideon narrative, and it was back in Judges chapter six when Gideon had a terrible conversation with the angel of the Lord. He knew he deserved death, and God speaks peace unto him. And when God speaks peace unto Gideon, it removes his fears and means deliverance for the nation. But now, when Gideon speaks of peace, it only means wholeness for himself and it causes fear to rise in everyone else. Though the nation had peace, Gideon did not. Something was still lacking for Gideon. He was discontent with the deliverance that the Lord had provided. He craved more and more and more. You see, when I am on my own mission, I am never satisfied. When I am on my own mission, it is never enough. I am never satisfied. Gideon wanted something so bad that he lost his contentment in God. People on mission for self do not find God to be enough. They want something more. They seek satisfaction outside of who God is and the deliverance he has provided in Christ Jesus. And Gideon would learn that this is a dead-end street. And oh, that God would give us grace this morning to know that this is surely a dead-end street seeking satisfaction apart from who God is and all he's given us in Christ. And so, in verses 10 through 12, Gideon catches up to Zeba and Zalmunna after pursuing. He captures them, and now with them in his hand, he goes about parading them on a nationwide tour, showing all of his fellow Israelites the great accomplishment of capturing these kings. First stop on the tour, sucketh, just as promised. He arrives there, and upon going into the city, he captures one of the men of Sukkoth. He gets the names of all the guys who said no to him. He walks into the city and then tortures his brother, thus making a name for himself. 
He parades these kings around and says, look at how great I am. And he punishes everyone who stood in the way. You see, when I am on my mission, I seek my own glory. When I'm on my own mission, it's no longer about seeking God's glory. Now I'm seeking my glory and making a name for myself. People who are on their own mission love to put themselves forward. They want others to think highly of them and their accomplishments and their accolades. Serving in obscurity is unthinkable. Faithfully fulfilling their God-given duties is unimaginable unless someone sees them doing it. Celebrating others and rejoicing in their victories is hard. So in verses 18 through 19, we learn why Gideon has been pursuing these kings. What has been the motive of his mission? What has been the motive driving him beyond God's call? It says that Ziba and Zalmunna killed Gideon's brothers. Gideon has a personal vendetta against them. This is a sin of passion and Gideon is seeking vengeance. It is no longer about the peace of the nation of Israel. Now it is about Gideon's personal peace. When I am on my own mission, I seek vengeance. When I am on my own mission, I seek vengeance against those who have wronged me. You see, people on God's mission can pray for and love their enemies, trusting that one day the perfect judge will bring about justice. They entrust their souls to their faithful creator while continuing to do good. But people on mission for self, they become judge, jury, and executioner. They do not believe that the almighty just judge of the earth will one day make all things right, and so they take matters into their own hands. In verse 820, Gideon then tries to humiliate Ziba and Zalmunna by having his youngest son kill them. His son responds with fear, a fear that reminds us of fearful Gideon that we met in the wine press. A fearful Gideon who hesitated when God called upon him. A fearful Gideon who needed reassurance of God's presence over and over and over again. The Gideon that sought to bring peace to his people. The Gideon that was on God's mission, not his own. And so Gideon finally kills Ziba and Zalmunna. And again, we would expect the story to come to an end. But that's not what we see. There's still more. Because the reality is sin always, always, always takes us further than we want to go and it keeps us longer than we want to stay. Sin takes us further than we want to go and it keeps us longer than we want to stay and it's exactly what we see with Gideon. And so this morning, which of these Gideons most characterizes your life? Whose mission are you on? Whose mission am I on? The Gideon of Judges 6 and 7 was fearful and yet willing to be obedient if God continually promised his presence. When Gideon was on God's mission, he sought God's glory through personal weakness and he was led to worship and obey. In Judges chapter 8, Gideon is ruthless, reckless, and entirely unconcerned with God's presence. He saw others as a means to his end. He punished people when they got in his way. He was never satisfied. He wanted to make much of his own name and he sought vengeance and was controlled by it. You see, Gideon loses the sight of God who found him in the wine press. He forgets that he was once the least member of the weakest clan who only had to depend on God's strength and God's presence to prevail. 
Gideon was shown much grace in that time, and now he no longer is seeking to extend that same grace to others. When Gideon loses sight of who God is, he loses sight of God's mission. When Gideon loses sight of who God is, Gideon ceases to worship and obey. When Gideon seems to forget who God is, he is no longer concerned about God's glory. He's concerned about his own. When Gideon takes his, li- his eyes off of who God is, he makes life about who he is, not about who he is. And so, this morning, who is your life about? Whose mission are you on? If you're not sure, maybe start by examining the symptoms. Are you worshiping the Lord? And are you obeying the Lord? And is your life characterized by worship and obedience? Are you more passionate about making much of him or are you more excited about making much of yourself? Do you find comfort in your own abilities, your own wisdom, your own finances, or is your hope in God's strength and in his strength alone? When was the last time that you were clearly aware of God's presence in your life? Or what about in your interactions with others? Do you see people as a means to an end? And if you're wondering the answer to that, maybe go home and ask your husband, your wife, your kids, or the people that are closest in your family and friends. And say, how do I make you feel? Do I make you feel like you're just a means to my end, to accomplishing what I want accomplished? Do you punish people when they stand in your way and get in the way of what you want to do? Is your life more characterized by vengefulness or forgiveness? If today you're saying, praise the Lord, yes, I am on God's mission. Life is truly about making much of Jesus Christ. Then praise God for the grace that he is showing you. And then beg God for more grace to continue to be faithful in being on his mission. Because Gideon started well, but he certainly didn't finish well. If you think, wow, you know what? I I think there was a time in my life where it was all about making much of God and I was on his mission, but I don't think that that's true anymore. Then this morning I call you to lift your head and see this God who has revealed himself as great and glorious and merciful This God who has arms stretched out, who's just longing for you to repent and to faithfully seek and serve him with your life. This morning, if you think, I'm pretty certain that I'm on mission for myself, then repent. Do exactly what God called the people of Israel to do in Judges 6, verse 10. He's saying, you have not obeyed my voice. And time and time again throughout the book of Judges, he's calling them to repentance. And now when you cry out for deliverance from being concerned about self, God points you to Jesus Christ and says, I have provided the deliverance in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. So turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Stop pursuing a mission and a life that is about you and start pursuing a mission that is about God and his glory. And so this morning, whose mission are you on? Father, we're grateful for your word. Father, we're grateful for truth. We're grateful that you have in your kindness revealed yourself to us. God, that you have 
shown yourself to be a gracious and merciful and faithful and loving father. And God, that you have revealed yourself to us most clearly in Jesus Christ. And Father, that you make a life of worship and obedience possible because of Jesus and what Jesus Christ has done. And so this morning, we proclaim Jesus as our only hope in life and in death. Father, I would pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that are rejoicing that you have given them grace to be obedient to your mission. And God, I pray that you would cause them to persevere, to endure. Father, I pray for those who believe that they started well, but they haven't recently been pursuing you. Oh God, would you this morning lift their eyes, cause them to see you in your grace and in your glory. Father, I pray for those in this room who would say, life has never been about God. It's always been about me. God, would you draw them to repentance? Would you turn them to trust in Jesus and in his sacrifice? And Father, for all of us, I pray that our lives would be true, that our lives would be only about you, Jesus, and making much of you for the glory of your name, for the good of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name.